happy Saturday. It's August 13th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Ashley, this is a very exciting, very big morning here on Morning Meeting. You know why? I have no idea. Here's a surprise for you. This today is our 100th episode. Wait, our what episode? Our 100th episode. We've done this a hundred times? We have done it a hundred times, baby. Have I done anything a hundred times? <laughs> I love it. This is our 100th episode of Morning Meeting. It's an exciting uh, milestone. And we want to thank all of you out there who have listened to us across the last two years. At the risk of sounding like Brene Brown, gratitude break. We are so fortunate. A, we love doing this. We love our guests. We love our listeners. Uh, This is the most fun you could ever possibly have, I think. Uh, Although that's being said, I've never tried skydiving. We love doing this show and we are so fortunate, A, that Airmail has supported us. Thank you to Graydon and Alessandra and Bill and Emily and our entire team. And I want to thank you for being the Ginger Rogers who does everything so gracefully, (laughs) even, even, you know, as I say, doing it backwards. So thank you. (laughs) And I want to thank you for being the brains of the operation. Oh, no, 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 no. The brains and the brawn. Okay, Michael, we're getting embarrassing now. Let's get to the show. Let's get to the show. We've got a fantastic show. We've got great guests. We've got Jill Kargman. We've got Rich Cohen with a great crime story. Jill Kargman's going to make us laugh. And we got Elliot Ackerman, the best-selling author, with a with a talking about his fantastic new book. We're, so we've got a lot going on, and it's been. If that's not enough, there's a lot happening in the world to discuss as well. Yes, indeed. Okay. I know that the news is moving on, but I still can't stop talking about the FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago. I'm sorry. I am sorry. You know what? We went around the office this week. Everyone said, what do you think they found in the safe? You want my guess? You want What's your guess? I mean, I had so many. I, Hillary's emails. The one I think that they ended up running on social media was, a, you know, tubs of Jergens hand cream laced with human growth hormone. <laughs> yeah, I had, I had a few. I would say Lindsey Graham's sense of shame. Mitch McConnell's spine. You know, the other thing I have is that this is a guy who, let's pull back for a second. During his time in office, everyone on the left was so convinced that the Russians have compromise on him uh, and, you know, uh, uh, tapes of him and recordings of, of certain illicit natures. I, I would want to remind everyone, this is a guy who didn't get where he got in the world by not having compromise on other people. You know, so I wouldn't be surprised if there's some very damning pieces in there that he just wants to have in order to um, manipulate other people down the road. Anyway, let's get to the issue. Where would you like to begin, my dear? Let's start with a little bit of true crime. If you read part one of Rich Cohen's series, Murder Boy, in last week's issue, you probably didn't sleep for the past week. And for that, we apologize. Yeah, we've got Rich Cohen here this week, who's a longtime airmail contributor, longtime writer for Vanity Fair, the author of numerous books on everything from peewee hockey to the Chicago Bears to the last pirate in New York. He is a great thinker and a great chronicler of true crime. And he's here to talk about a crime that has riveted all of New England. It is a story of a young man named Nathan Carmen, known around town as Murder Boy because people long suspected he would commit crime. It's about the murder of his grandfather, who had an estate worth $40 million, and then the subsequent murder of his mother, who, st- who inherited that estate, which then uh, was going to pass on to Nathan. So it's a complex, fascinating whodunit that is still unraveling, but Rich has woven riveting narrative together, and he's here to talk about how he did it and what he's learned about 
Murder Boy. Rich Cohen is here with us. Take us back to 2016. Who is Nathan Carmen? He's a kid with deep, serious mental problems. He's been diagnosed with Asperger's when he was a kid, but this isn't that. He's so got some kind of psychosis that's been hard to diagnose. And it's like, to me, he fits a pattern of a lot of disconnected young men who do things that seem inconceivable. And uh, it seemed like he struggled his whole childhood with his mother, who he was trying to get away from. And he being sort of befriended by the grandfather and the grand, his grandmother died. And then his grandfather was murdered. Uh, was shot in the head, in bed, and the last person known to have seen the grandfather alive the night that he was shot in the head was Nathan Carmen, and he was also due to inherit uh, like five hundred and fifty thousand dollars when the grandfather died, and the police believed that he had done this, and they even had they never found the murder weapon, but they found what looked like a receipt for the murder weapon. Uh, he bought this gun that matched the gun used in the killing. But ultimately, the police just couldn't get the case to stick because it was all circumstantial evidence. There was no witness. Of course, his fingerprints were all over the place because he was there all the time. And he took this money and he moved up to Vermont and lived kind of like a recluse in a house where he was kind of feared and known in this town, this kind of scary person with this flat countenance and the strange behavior. And he took some of his money and bought a boat. He loved to be alone on a boat called the Chicken Pox. And basically, he didn't work or anything. So he eventually ran out of money. When he ran out of money, he asked his mother to go on a fishing trip. Uh, Eight days later, he was found alone in a life raft rescued by a Chinese tanker ship. And he didn't look like a guy would look. He said the boat had sunk seven days earlier and his mother had died and he tried to save her and he couldn't. But he didn't look like a person that had been at sea on a life raft for seven days. He looked didn't even look suntanned, let alone blistered and crazy and hungry. Ultimately, they couldn't bring a case against him for this either. Just to frame it, though, also, he stood to inherit $550,000 from his grandfather, who had an estate worth $40 million. Right. And that estate then went to his mother. But it was known that after his mother passed, who was only in her 50s, that whole estate would go to Nathan Carmen, correct? Yeah, large part of most of it would go to him. So it was sort of like he ran out of money. He, he basically would go to his relatives like you go to an ATM, except to get the money, you had to kill the person. Or I think he killed his mother. She sunk at sea, and, and the, he's now on trial for killing his mother. Basically, the reason why he ultimately got caught is not because the police were able to make a murder case, because he claimed insurance on the boat that sank. He wanted the insurance. And then once he wanted the insurance, then the insurance investigators got involved. And Insurance investigators, I don't know if you know about them. My father used to be one. They're like, uh, they don't quit. And they don't have to follow the same rules as police have to follow. They can get their information wherever they want. They don't have to worry if it's hearsay or any of that. They just have to make the case the insurance claim shouldn't be paid. But in the process of doing that and winning that case, and the insurance wasn't paid, they basically demonstrated that this kid seemingly murdered his grandfather and his mother. And uh, then the police and the FBI ultimately took it from there. And now he's on trial. You have such a chilling conclusion to your story, Rich. You know, you say, with his dead eyes and stiff arms and tantrums and RV and cold demeanor, he stands for every murderous young lunatic who has turned up in our supermarkets, at our parades, and on our streets. What do you think it is about American culture that churns out these kinds of characters? Accepting that there's always been crazy people, okay? 
But right now we have this rash of mass shooters, which I couldn't help but connect him to. What he did was different, but I see him as one of the in this spectrum of people. And this seems like a new thing to me. And some people say it's the guns, and some people say it's this and that. It's it is the guns, and it is all that. But the fact is, it's something about our society is like I feel like it's sick, and I don't know what the cause is. I, I think of social media has a lot to do with it, and that people don't interact personally, and people see everything on screens. And they sort of see other people as if they're on video games. And normally when you write crime stories, because I've been writing for lately, they're really, crime stories are interesting because they're people acting badly in tense situations and mystery and, and all that. But this is, every now and then you come across a story that chills you to the bone because it seems like to connect the company deep in the psyche of the country. And I, and I feel like we have a whole generation coming up full of people like this. It's still a marginal number, but a marginal number is all you need. It's a, it's a terrible kind of time because I feel like we're just creating like a lot of lunatics. And you know, somebody, you know, when I was a kid, I asked why it was that when somebody in Chicago where Michael and I grew up, why it was that somebody who killed a cop got a capital punishment? I didn't understand why that was different. And I was because somebody that will kill a cop will kill anybody, will do anything. You know, and I feel that way with this kid, somebody that will kill their mother and their grandfather. You know, it's the it's somebody that will do that is just unfathomable and will do anything. And is that's why they're not letting him out of jail, because he's very scary and you don't know what he's going to do. And he doesn't seem like he's alone. He seems like he's part of a whole bad symptom that we're seeing more and more to the point where we're just accepting it as regular life. Rich, one of the things that struck me about this story is it doesn't seem like it's had a ton of national attention outside from your story in airmail. Why do you think that is? Is it because we've become inured to these kinds of stories? They're so commonplace now in American life. I think that's part of it. And I think a lot of what gets covered has to do with the number of people and the kind of people that get killed. And also, like, as you saw at the beginning of our discussion, it's complicated. It's a real weird story. It's like a David Lynch plot. I mean, there's so many ins and outs, and it's a, it's a continuing crime over a number of years, and it's a kind of a failure of the system to stop him. It's another story about that, which is the police basically believed he killed his grandfather right away, the next day, but it took the death of his mother and another whatever five years to actually arrest him. So I think it's almost somebody walks into a gun in a store and shoots a bunch of people. That's easy to explain in a sentence. This is a really strange story that's harder to sum up. Well, I think it'd make an incredible movie or a miniseries or a, a television drama or something, right? Yeah. I mean, because it's one of those stories that I think that it's an interesting story in that it's become not the anomaly, but it's become regular. So, yeah, I think it'd make a, a good, very, very scary movie. It's fascinating as well. There's only two people who know what happened on that boat. One of them's dead. Right. So he took his mother out on his little fishing boat and the boat sank with his mother up in it. And the murder weapon was there for the boat. Right, which is now at the bottom of the ocean. And nobody even knows exactly where because he keeps changing, like because he said he was one place, but all the currents and tides said he was somewhere else. And so no one even knows exactly where it happened. So there's no way. That's why it was so hard to prove the case, because there there was only one witness. She died. There was the murder weapon. It's the bottom of the ocean. This is one of those people 
that everybody knew something bad was going to happen eventually. And it, it didn't take very long. Rich, thank you for an incredibly addictive read and a beautifully told tale of a horrifying time of a horrifying person. Go check out the story and look at the pictures of him. And just it comes through somehow in the pictures. He's sort of it gives you a little shudder. Rich, thank you so much. We'll, we'll see you soon. Hopefully under better circumstances. Well, yeah. Thanks, you guys. Nice talking to you. All right, Michael, we'll never sleep again, but that's not really a problem. We've got Jill Kargman here to distract us with something a little bit more chipper. I am so excited to have Jill Kargman on the show. I love Jill so much. Fun fact, Jill and I used to go to Soul Cycle together. <laughs> Fist bump for the 83rd Street location. Those were the days. Did you each have your own bike? What, like bike 19, bike 20? We were part of the 730 Club back in the day. And she wrote about her Soul Cycle days in one of her essay collections. She's written many of them. My favorites are Sometimes I Feel Like a Nut and Sprinkle Glitter on My Grave. Charming titles. She also created and starred in the Peacock series Odd Mom Out, which is another must-watch show if you haven't seen it yet. And she is joining us today to talk about one of her favorite television programs, South Park, which is celebrating its 25th anniversary this month. Welcome, Jill Kargman. Jill Kargman, we follow and love your work. So we know you have done more in the past 25 years than just watch South Park. But how much South Park have you actually watched? I've watched all 25 years worth, and it's really been sort of my therapy as we all wade through the pop culture tsunamis that keep hitting us. It's not only a record of pop culture, but it's also a record of like of politics and American life in many ways, because what the show I think you write about it does so smartly and incisively is, is it tackles these really hot button issues. Tell us a little bit about why that resonated with you. Well, they just have balls of steel. I mean, to be able to talk about abortion or child molestation or Scientology or Mormonism or whatever, and just kind of hold this uncensored funhouse mirror to these things and, and just go for it. I mean, probably everyone would be offended, which in a way cancels out <laughs> all of the cancel culture hot button things. So it's like when it's just equal opportunity offending, then I think you can just laugh at it. Well, and it strikes me as a uniquely American show in many ways, right? Because it highlights the absurdity of American life in terms of the way that it covers things. For sure. I think it's so quintessentially American because not just the small town USA thing, but the, the melting pot of cultures that exists here. And then, of course, you know, the stupid shit like there's an episode about medicinal fried chicken where they're trying to get rid of KFC in all these towns because everyone's getting obese. And, you know, that's something that could only happen here. Well, one thing I love about also Jill's, I think like not just love, but how impressed I am is how quickly they can generate an episode that is rolling off of something in the news like happened last week and because of the way they set up their production and their writing. It's five days to air. It's five days to air, which is like a op-ed in a weekly news magazine. Just is like, they've got to take, they've got to, and you like, and then you watch it and your reaction is, how come I haven't heard anyone frame it like that? Exactly. Like any great satire, it's making you laugh, but then you pause and the intelligence that is the foundation of it is truly provocative thinking there. It's, 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 and it's, it's, I, and that's, I'm with you, makes it unlike anything else that you see. Did you see the documentary about how the episodes come together? Yeah. It's yeah. just amazing. Everyone yeah. has to watch it if you like the show, because I took for granted how 
much work it is and the crazy hours they put in. I mean, I think because the animation is kind of crude and cut out looking, they have the opportunity to get things on the griddle that quickly, which another show couldn't do. And all these, you know, Family Guy and Simpsons and all these sort of legendary shows have a much more complicated style and technique where they have painters in China and people really making the cells, which is more time consuming and laborious. Whereas these guys have that sort of raw kinetic of the moment energy in it. And, you know, when my parents come in and I'm watching it, they're like, what the hell is this garbage? Like, what are you watching? And they don't get it. And I think at first glance, they just think it looks sophomoric, but that's sort of the whole point. I mean, that's what I love about it. And, you know, through the prism of these fourth graders that are just rendered in that sort of almost, you know, that Matisse collage style, I think that the stuff is even more shocking in a way when it comes out of their mouths, which is, I love the animation. I take, it probably took getting used to a few, once you're used to all these other things, but I mean, after 25 years, I feel like it's just cool and, and raw. I just love the whole, the whole thing is just my favorite. I'm curious, you know, you, with your deep Talmudic knowledge now of, uh, <laughs> of South Park, um, what, there must be lines that live in your mind that sum things up where you throw them at your kids in certain cities. Are there certain lines that you sort of like, you know, the karmic wisdom of, of South Park that you've that, that you find yourself thinking about? I would say I, one that always keeps coming up is there's a there's an episode that um, it's kind of about San Francisco. See, they bash the right, but they also bash the extreme left. And I kind of live in the I'm liberal, but I live somewhere in the middle, you know, because they, they have all these allegories for global warming and climate change that, that continue and mocking the people that don't believe in climate change. But then they also have this San Francisco episode about the smug instead of smog of Prius drivers that every Prius driver has to tell you it's a Prius. And there's like a cloud that forms over the cars and it moves to to California. And it's this perfect storm with George Clooney's acceptance speech from the Oscars. And so the two clouds like combine and create this whole meteorological event. All right, Jill. Well, thank you so much. A for loving South Park, B for writing about it and C for joining us. My pleasure to all three. D, all of the above. Thanks for having me. All right, Jill, the last thing I'm going to say to you is uncut jams. Uncut jams. It's Jill Cargman's world, Michael. I just want to live in it. It's Jill Cargman's world. I just want to live in it. I mean, it's like she should be the fifth kid on South Park. She's got that sensibility and that caustic, cutting, smart voice. What I would be lobbying for right now. I'm going to call Matt and Trey and set that up. You should. She's a busy woman, but the writer's room would be fortunate to have her. I like it. Okay, well, um, on a headier note, on a slightly more serious note, we do have a fascinating conversation up ahead with Elliot Ackerman. Michael? It's funny how fast the news moves these days, but just to remind everyone, a year ago, we were sitting here watching the United States go through a lightning speed, chaotic withdrawal of United States troops from Afghanistan as the Taliban kind of then raced into the void. There have been some very dramatic stories told about that time, one of which is in the issue this week. It's by Lisa Wolf, who recounts how they spirited a group of Afghan girls out of Afghanistan. But for many, it was a retreat that seemed to come out of nowhere and one that was, as many of us witnessed on the news, chaotic and disorganized, with many Afghans who had been friends and allies to the U.S. over those two decades seemingly abandoned 
desperate to escape as the Taliban raced to seize power. This week, we're joined by Elliot Ackerman, a writer who brings a unique perspective to the events of last year. He's the author of seven books and has been nominated for the National Book Award, as well as the Dayton Literary Prize. But more importantly, he's also a former Marine who served five tours in Afghanistan, as well as Iraq, where he received the Silver Star, the Bronze Star for Valor, and the Purple Heart. He's here because he has just written a new book, The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan, which is about the events of a year ago and how we can make sense of them now. So welcome, Elliot. Thanks for having me, Michael. So, Elliot, I've read this book. I find it wise, heartbreaking, brimming with insights. Why did you want to write it and take us back to a year ago? Well, I hadn't really planned to write this book. So at the beginning of August, a year ago, as everything was collapsing in Afghanistan, my book editor had the idea of doing just sort of a short paperback original, because in his words, he felt like most people hadn't been following the war for a number of years, which I think is probably accurate. And he thought it might be useful to have something come out, which would be a collection of writings that kind of explained the politics of what occurred. So we agreed on that in early August. And then I actually had a long planned family holiday for two weeks in Italy of all places. So we went on our trip as the situation was deteriorating in Afghanistan. And the two weeks of that trip corresponded to the fall of Kabul and the evacuation of the last American soldier out of Afghanistan, as well as the tens of thousands of Afghans who were fleeing. And I found myself involved in a number of evacuation efforts. The book is called The Fifth Act, and there are five evacuation efforts that I write about specifically in the book. Some ended well, some did not end as well. But after this two-week period, I called up my book editor and said, listen, I, I just I think this is going to be a very different book because I want to write about what happened. So when I was talking to you about this, it was in the middle of what you guys, a group of you that sort of came together over phone and text to organize what was known as your kind of digital Dunkirk, right? Can you take us inside that? I think that that has been a, a sort of an app name. Like there was an evacuation going on, but because the U.S. government did not really have systems in place for people who needed to get out of Afghanistan, there was no State Department phone number you could hand to an Afghan friend of yours or email address and feel with a good conscience that that was going to be enough to get them out. So what filled the gaps was a crowdsourced evacuation where people were making manifests. People were raising money for private charter flights to fly into Kabul. People were negotiating with the Taliban so that convoys could get to the airport. And then people were coordinating with the Americans at the airport so those convoys would be allowed through the gates. And so again, all of this was crowdsourced and most of that crowdsourcing was happening, as you mentioned, on cell phones, on WhatsApp and Signal. And the result at times was very chaotic. And I think for those of us who fought in the war, who had been involved in the war, it was also kind of this, you're being taken back in time in some ways to places and issues that you were dealing with 10 or 15 years before. And for instance, I left Afghanistan for the last time in 2011. So for me, it was sort of like going 10 years back in time. And it was taking you back into, I mean, with people, translators, guides, people who, as you say, had you as an American soldier and and the vis-a-vis the U.S. government had given the word to that you would always stand behind them. And then here they were desperate to get out and reaching out to you. And the emotional pull of all that on you is unbelievable in the book. Well, and the very strong undercurrent through all of this and still today, frankly, is this idea of what does it mean not to leave anybody behind? 
and the U.S. military, that idea of we don't leave anyone behind is fundamental to that organization's ethos. I first showed up in the U.S. military when I was 17 years old, so I was very much kind of reared on these ideas. And yet as the Afghan war is ending, what's being asked of so many people is to leave people behind in mass. And yet there were dramatic successes. I mean, that you guys did achieve and you did get many people out. Is there one that's particularly dramatic or that sticks in your mind? I think one that was very poignant to me was, again, you're sort of getting pulled back into the war and there were a number of coincidences. So one of the coincidences was there were two Marine infantry battalions and a battalion's about a thousand Marines. And one of those battalions was the battalion that I fought in in Iraq. 1st Battalion of the 8th Marine Regiment. So it happened to be that my old unit was at the airport, and that unit was commanded by a colonel who I went through my training with when we were in our early 20s. This is in back in 2003. And so I was able early on to connect the dots. I'm like, oh, it's Chris Richardello. He's at the airport. I got his cell phone. I dug it up from another friend of mine, and I called him, and he picked up his phone. He said, yeah, I'm at the airport. Actually, I'm at the North Gate. And if you need to get people in, I can help you get people in. And so we had, through another friend of mine, and again, this is all just networks kind of lighting up. Another friend of mine had, through a friend of a friend, an Afghan interpreter who'd been an interpreter for the U.S. Special Forces and his wife who was pregnant. And they were trying to get into the airport. And so we worked on their case for very intense 48 hours trying to navigate them into the airport. And I was at a moment, you know, strangely enough, I was at a moment with my family where I'm on my holiday and I'm actually at the airport in Venice flying south in Italy. And I'm going through security at the airport at the exact moment we're trying to navigate Shaw and his wife, Faruzan, this interpreter, through the North Gate. And the way I found out they'd made it through is we're all texting back and forth. There was this sort of long period of silence, about 20 minutes of silence, where we knew they were trying to link up, but we didn't know if it successfully happened. And the text thread, we were coordinating this, a photograph popped up. And it was my friend, Chris Richardella, who I hadn't seen in years, and with his helmet and his flak jacket on, with his arm around Sean Faruzan, and he got them into the airport. And I'm sitting there at a nice luxe airport in Italy with my wife and my four kids. And I get this photograph, and I just felt this moment of time just really collapsing. I mean, not just my time in Afghanistan, but my time in Iraq. And I texted Chris. I said, hey, just between you and me, which one of your companies got him out? Because in a battalion, there's three companies. And this one, it was Alpha, Bravo, Charlie. And he texted me back, your old company, of course, anything for a Marine from 1st Battalion, 8th Marine Regiment. And that was very moving for me. It was sort of felt like life kind of coming full circle. And it was, we had had some frustrating setbacks the day before. And so to see something work out, that way was, was pretty heartening. I remember speaking to you a little bit during that time, and I think you had complex emotions about, as any soldier would, about serving there and then seeing 20 years and just pulling up stakes. With some distance, how do you feel about how the administration executed the withdrawal? And was it the right thing to do? Was it a good thing to do? Well, what's your perspective a year out now? Well, the administration, I would say administrations, I think both the Trump administration and the Biden administration were both very vocal that the war in Afghanistan needs to end. And we need to end this war in Afghanistan. But it sort of bears a larger question, you know, what does it mean to end a war? And as it was presented to the American people, the war in Afghanistan ends when all the troops come home. And that seems to be an idea that lingers in our conscience as in our consciousness as Americans. I would argue that the only time wars end when all the troops come home is when we unequivocally lose the war. 
If you look at the wars that we've won and that we say have ended, the troops have stayed. I mean, we have an enduring troop presence in Europe, which we've seen has been very important with what's going on in Ukraine. We still have troops on the, that troop presence dates back to the Second World War. We have a troop presence in the Pacific from the Second World War, one in the Korean Peninsula from the Korean War. So troops obviously went to zero in Vietnam. And, and I bring that up not to like argue for worldwide occupations, but if you look at how the war in Afghanistan was going sort of in 2017 and 2018, although it had gone on way too long, and I'd be the first to say that, I mean, there were huge sunk costs there. It seemed as though we were making the decisions to make this categorical troop withdrawal based off those sunk costs, not based off of having a strong U.S. strategic position in the region. Well, it's a book, as I said, it's called The Fifth Act. It's out now. It's by Elliot Ackerman. Elliot, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me, Michael. Thanks so much, man. All right. Well, Elliot has given us something to read, Michael. But before we head out into this beautiful weekend, do you have anything at all to recommend? I do. But before I recommend, you know, speaking of things to read and all that and and, and history and these amazing times we live in and trying to make sense of them. I just want to pause and note that one of, I think, all of our favorite writers passed away this week, David McCullough, the best-selling writer who specialized in, in fantastic books about history from his, his biography of John Adams and uh, Harry Truman. Uh, he won the National Book Award for uh, the Path Between the Seas, the creation of the Panama Canal, and as well as Mornings on Horseback about Teddy Roosevelt. But he was, I think, an inspiration to so many writers, and uh, he had so many fans of his books because he made uh, history come alive. Everyone always complains that its history is dry, but, you know, he truly inhabited his characters, as they point out in one of his obituaries. It, almost like he was preparing for a role when he was working on his book about uh, the Brooklyn Bridge called the Great Bridge. He grew a beard like the engineer Roebling who worked on it. And when he was working on his book about Truman, Truman took these sort of famous uh, morning walks and McCulloch started to do that as well. But he is, um, I think he's, he's, he was one of my favorite writers. He started at, uh, as a magazine writer, and then after his, the success of his first big book, which is about the, tenant, the Jonestown flood, he decided to become a writer full-time. But if you never read any of his work, I would encourage you to go back and look at maybe Truman or John Adams, or especially the, uh, the book about the making of the Brooklyn Bridge. John Adams is my favorite. Did you see the HBO miniseries about John Adams starring Paul Giamatti? And Laura Linney as his wife, yeah. So good. And don't forget, he narrated uh, the Ken Burns series, The Civil War. Had that kind of voice of God in there. Do, do, do. Okay, I'll stop now. <laughs> but you asked me for a recommendation. I do have one this summer. This is kind of like, it's that time of summer. It's late August when you're kind of, you don't want something heavy. You want something light, nothing lugubrious. And I have found something that also will has a great sort of like travel setting. If you're if you're sort of if you're sitting here now wondering like I didn't get away this summer, I want to look at something beautiful. This is a fantastic twofer, and it comes recommended to me by Graydon Carter. It is called the Madame Blanc Mysteries, and it's filled with escapist charm. It tells the story of a woman named Jean White, who is a antiques dealer in the UK, who is forced to turn sleuth to investigate her husband's suspicious death in the south of France in a little town called Saint-Victoire. And it's sort of like, it's a English whodunit set in the 
fantastic French countryside, and it is available on Acorn TV. You can look it up. It's like I say, it's a nice end of summer light fair. Open it up with a Dubonnet, maybe like the Queen Mother, and uh, enjoy it. And you, darling? Well, I have another one from the south of France, sorry to say. Everyone book your tickets now. <laughs> All right. Aix-en-Provence. It looks beautiful, charming. They have great carousels, as my children can attest. What could possibly go wrong? Well, it turns out plenty. There's a fantastic series on BritBox called Murder in Provence, and it stars Roger Allen and Nancy Carroll. Roger plays a character named Antoine Verlac, and he is the local magistrate. And his partner also happens to be his lover, because, by the way, this show takes place in France. And her name is Marine Bonin. Together, they solve crimes in Aix-en-Provence. And this series is based on the books of Emma Longworth, and it's fabulous. You're going to love it. Uh, if you don't, I don't even know what to say um, because it takes place in Aix-en-Provence and it involves solving crimes. What's not to love? Uh, the second season is coming out momentarily. So now is your moment to catch up. Again, it's called Murder in Provence on BritBox. And I'm tempted to talk about the new Beyonce Renaissance album, but I think there have already been 4,000 podcasts devoted to that. So we will stop there. Well, so we've got two Gallic whodunits for the week. I would talk about Beyonce, but maybe we come back and talk about that next week on our 101st episode. The Beyonce Special Edition. Perfect. Exactly. All right. Wishing you all a wonderful weekend. For those of you who are on holiday, enjoy every minute. Michael and I are still here plugging away, and we will see you next week. Right. We do mean most sincerely deepest thanks to all of you who have listened to us and supported us over these past 100 episodes. And on that note... Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis. And our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. And we will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you for joining us. And we'll see you for episode 101 next week. <laughs>